A really warm welcome to the latest Clear Cruise podcast. My name's Andy Harmer, and I'm delighted that you have chosen to listen to our latest instalment about the world of cruise. And it's quite an exciting world of cruise at the moment, as operations commence at ports around the world as cruise lines and cruise ships welcome back guests. Of course, one of the driving forces for guests choosing certain itineraries and certain ships is the destinations that they feature. And that's why this episode focuses very much on that destination experience. And joining me to interview our guests this time is Lucy Huxley, the editor-in-chief of Travel Weekly here in the UK. Uh, Lucy will be chatting to Robin West, the Vice President, Expedition Operations and Planning at Seabourn. But before that, Lucy is in conversation with Susanna Romero, Director, Galapagos Sales and Communications at Celebrity Cruises. Hi, how are you? So great to be here, Lucy. Oh, it's great to have you. Thank you so much for joining us. So we now need you to whet our appetites, paint a picture for us all about the Galapagos. So for people who've never been, can you just describe the experience you have uh, in that part of the world? After listening to, to Robin, I got to tell you, I went to the Arctic and I saw one polar bear and that was enough for me to be thrilled. Yeah. So yes, fantastic. And that was a great presentation. I, as I was listening to him, I was saying there are so many similarities because expedition cruising, it's all about that. It's about enrichment. And in Galapagos, it's not all about the wildlife. The wildlife kind of takes a center stage but it is the synergy between the environment, the terrain, the geology, the geography, and the ocean. The ocean, those currents, that is the spark that fuels life in Galapagos. It's all about how those currents fuel the bottom, bring all of the food up, where the different species come and eat and thrive and, and work together to do all of that wonderful dance that brings Galapagos to life. The species are amazing. What you get to see there on a daily basis, how you connect, how it makes you feel, and how it makes you think about the world, right? You go to Galapagos for learning, for disconnecting, for seeing the wildlife. When you get there, you do realize that it is about how you view the world, that harmony that happens in that incredible archipelago and how you can bring some of that back to your daily life. And that is what has truly inspired me to be part of what we do in the Galapagos Islands. Oh, it sounds amazing. So could you tell us, Susanna, what a typical day would be like on a Galapagos cruise? Are they all different or is it quite, you know, quite a system of getting up, getting off the ship, etc.? You know, the, the rhythm is a little bit similar every day, right? Uh, the Galapagos National Park highly regulates everything that is done in Galapagos, and rightfully so, by the way. Uh, they are truly watching what every company does. Not only do you need to be in compliance with their um, rules and regulations, but you also have to exceed those rules and regulations because we are being privileged to sail in a part of the world that is truly unique and different. For example, in Galapagos, they don't even allow drones to be flown. You can't use a cell phone when you're on the islands because those waves disrupt the animals. So there is this focus to make sure that it stays as pristine as it is. We always say, just take memories with you and 
absolutely nothing is left behind other than our footprints. Get up in the morning. You're up early because you are on an expedition and that sunrise in Galapagos is truly unique. The birds begin to fly. You're outside with your cup of coffee. You go in and have breakfast. And then the night before, via the briefing that is led by the expedition leader, you already pick what you're going to do in the morning. So if you're going on an excursion that includes um, snorkeling, you're going to suit up, you're going to get all of your gear up, and then you're going to get ready to get off the ship on the watercrafts, whether they're Zodiacs or they're yacht tenders, whatever ship you happen to be on. We happen to have three in Galapagos celebrity does that in a very different way. And we'll talk a little bit about the ships later, right? But you get ready to go and you go ashore with between eight and 10 people and your naturalist. So you spend hours ashore, you go on a hike, you go snorkeling, you have those amazing encounters. You listen, you learn, you feel. And then after your excursion is done, you get on your watercraft and you come back. Now, during your journey back, which could be five or 10 minutes, you may encounter whales, you may encounter dolphins. They could be a whole bunch of blue-footed boobies bomb diving, trying to find food. So is it the same? Absolutely not. Because nature is not the same on a daily basis, right? And someone told me that the wildlife in the Galapagos, I'm, I've not been, but it, you can get very up close. And obviously not touch it, but you can, you know, they don't run away or hide. They're, they're obviously used to people coming and not frightened. So they, uh, you really can get these incredible experiences. Well, first of all, Lucy, we need to do something about you not being to Galapagos. I'm, <laughs> I'm just saying that. So you and I yes. will talk about that later. But yes, it is true. For some reason, and, and no one truly knows why, uh, Galapagos animals have absolutely no fear of humans. There's many theories as to why. I just happen to think it's nature, right? So when you arrive, they actually come to greet you. They don't hide. You don't have to go look for the big five, right? Here, they are there. And when you show up and you get off that Zodiac or that watercraft, they're there greeting you. Sometimes you have to get out of the path because they're nesting right on your path. They're doing what they do. Whatever it is that they do, they're doing it right in front of you. So you keep, you don't need to search. They are there when you arrive and they are constantly part of your experience. Amazing. And what kind of people would a Galapagos cruise suit, Susanna? I mean, you know, you talked about snorkeling and hiking. I mean, do you need a, a level of fitness or, uh, or certainly mobility? That's, that's a fabulous question because, you know, age and and mobility has kind of evolved and 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 change um activity is now a place in your head and age is a place in your head right um i am 60 years old and i think like a 20 year old right now i don't always behave like a 20 year old but that's kind of a different story but i think we're all very active today so certainly galapagos is for the active but especially active in here someone that's hungry for encounters and knowledge and understanding, someone that truly wants to see nature at its best, someone that's willing to take a risk, right? I am going to go snorkeling, even if I've never snorkeled before, because you can do it from the beach. If you're an experienced snorkeler, you can go deep sea. But what's interesting is that we offer different levels of activity. Right. So if you're not the super hiker and you don't wanna go hike for three miles, you can do a coastal exploration from a watercraft and have just a tremendous amount of enrichment. 
Okay, so something, I guess, for all levels. That's great. Now, you mentioned uh, the ships. Obviously, um, Celebrity Flora, that's one of the most recent ones. Now, tell us why they're so special. They're obviously very different to perhaps celebrity ships that we that we know and perhaps people watching this will, will be familiar with. So tell us why they're so different and special. It is true. I'll tell you a little story. Back in 2003, we started thinking about what's the next destination, right? And at that time, we said, well, Galapagos sounds like a fantastic place to go. Now, at the time, Galapagos did not have luxury accommodations when it came specially to vessels. So we had an opportunity to bring luxury, to bring what, what Celebrity Cruises does best, which is food, service, accommodations, and design to a destination that has kind of been seen as a backpacking type of experience. So introduced Celebrity Expedition at the time. Celebrity Expedition was wildly successful. You couldn't get a, a, a room for years, right? So evolution of our um, brand in Galapagos, we expanded, which by the way, was an amazing, an amazing experience to do. Our president and CEO, Lisa Lutov Perlo, which I know you know, was adamant that we would have the best vessels, the best experience and offer truly what our guests are looking for. So she decided to build the first custom-built, purpose-built ship of its kind for Galapagos. Hence, Flora, the first and only all-sweet vessel in Galapagos came about. The idea was to build a vessel that brought the destination as close as, as you can into the vessel. Everywhere you go, it's glass, it's open, it's spaces dedicated to exploring. Even your room, every bed is designed. So even when you're sleeping, you're looking towards the water. So you, whether you are ashore or you are on board, you're truly in the destination. Oh, sounds fabulous. Well, look, I don't want to hog uh, all your time, Susanna. So let's get Andy back. He'll have loads of questions, I'm sure, from our audience. Here he is. I'm, I'm sold again. It's, it's a terrible <laughs> day for me because I've now realized I have to go to the Galapagos immediately. It will be our pleasure to host you. <laughs> right, I'm on my, I'm packing as we speak. Um, uh, quite a, as we'd expect, a load of questions for you. So thank you for setting the scene with, with so so remarkably. Um, first up, um, our our clients. This is from Diana. She says our clients able to use their mobile phones on the Galapagos to take photos and videos. Absolutely, a hundred percent. Yes, what they cannot do is communicate when you are on an inhabited island, even if you have a signal. Understood. That's great. Thank you very much for clearing that up. Paula says, how many unique species are there in the Galapagos and what are the key things to look out for in terms of that wildlife? Oh my gosh. Most of the species in Galapagos are unique to Galapagos, whether they are endemic or epidemic, right? Um, the main ones are, for example, the flightless cormorant, which is the only cormorant in the world that doesn't fly. It has fully adapted to live in Galapagos and it, it really doesn't need to fly anymore. The marine iguanas, which are the only seagoing iguanas in the world, they have adapted to actually dive and find all of their food from the bottom of the sea. You have the finches, you have the giant tortoises. There are so many. Most of them are actually endemic to the islands. Fantastic. Thank you. Um, a question around um, the pre-departure pre and post-departure. So in terms of those stays, where would you recommend that people do that and what kind of things can they explore? 
Great question. Our packages are all seamless, all-inclusive 10 nights. We include a two-night pre and keto, and we do that twofold. One, it allows us a 48-hour uh, time Sorry, time but frame. that's fine. Oh, good. Time frame for people to get in, especially if they're coming from Europe, right? Um, accommodating uh, uh, their bodies into keto. Uh, spending one night, we use the JW Marriott properties in, um, in keto. And then the next day is a full day tour that includes the colonial city, the new city, the Equatorial Line Museum, all curated for our guests and fully all-inclusive, which I know it's really, really important for the um, European market. Fantastic. A couple of comments from uh, from some other people who are watching. So Ruth says, amazing. Thank you so much. Uh, Jacqueline says, um, sold. Uh, what a chat. Thank you for the amazing interview. Uh, and she's super excited to learn about these destinations. So thank you from Jacqueline as well. Um, in terms of some of the um, the smaller islands, are, are there some that are really remote and therefore very few people on, or are they all closer to that sort of main island? Interesting. Actually, the islands are pretty far from each other, right? It's an archipelago. So you're going to find there's a, a 16 main locations uh, that are there when it comes to islands. Now, the itineraries, unlike some of the other expedition areas, are fully curated by the Galapagos National Park. They tell us where we go in the morning, where we go in the afternoon. Remember, in most cases, we're there by ourselves. So it's not like you're gonna find another group or another vessel visiting that location. So the, the itineraries are very well balanced. They're actually curated so there is no one else and there is time for the islands to regenerate from one week to the next when it comes to visitors. So you will get, no matter which itinerary you pick, you will get a very, very well-rounded experience in the Galapagos Islands. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed. And how fabulous. What an amazing destination. Thank you. I, I couldn't agree with you more. <laughs> You're listening to the Clear Cruise podcast on what is a very special episode focusing very much on the destination experiences guests on cruises around the world can enjoy. And now we head over to speak to Robin West, the Vice President, Expedition Operations and Planning at Seaborn. Hello, Robin. Hi, Lucy. Hi, Hi. nice to see you again. It's very nice to see you too. Now we've got 10 minutes. We've got to rattle through these two weeks. <laughs> so I'm going to put you on the spot straight away. Let's go to the Antarctic. Uh, like I just mentioned there, bucket list experiences. People really want to go and tick that off. But tell us about it. I know it's a a big place, but uh, what what do agents really need to know about the Antarctic? Well, I guess first of all, you know, it, it it's really the most incredible place on the earth. It, it it's it's so different. Pictures don't do it justice. You really need to go there to 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 experience it and to see how almost how vast it is in in, in some respects. Um, you know. I run into so many guests who joined us in Antarctica, and, and and I think every single one of them say the same phrase: "Best trip of my life." And I remember when I used to lead expeditions down to Antarctica, when leaving Ushuaia, I always used to brief guests and say, you know, prepare yourself. Antarctica is incredible, but every single trip after this is going to be dull in comparison. And guests would always laugh and have a bit of a chuckle. But, you know, towards the end of this of the expedition, when we were going across the Drake Passage, heading north back to Ushuaia, guests would always say, you know, you're right. This has been incredible and it's going to be very, very hard to, to kind of top this experience. I guess from, from, from travel agents, what they need to know, people who haven't experienced it before, 
from their perspective, no guest comes back unhappy. Every single guest comes back from Antarctica exceptionally happy. It's not as cold as everyone thinks. Now, I know you may find that odd, you know, it's the coldest place on the planet and it's surrounded by ice and glaciers, but people are dressed properly when they go ashore in Antarctica. And unless the wind is blowing, it's actually not that cold. I know so many guests who their first day of operations, they completely overdress, anticipating how cold it's going to be. But it's not actually that cold in Antarctica. It's an incredible destination to explore. And I, I think if I had to count the number of times people say they're actually cold while outside or on, because they're engaged in an environment they've never seen before. They're looking at things they've never seen before. So, you know, and they're dressed properly for the occasion. So, you know, I know so many people always say, oh, you know, I want to go to a warm area for an expedition, but that's really not something to, 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 to be concerned about. And then I think, you know, one of the other things too is every single person who goes to Antarctica comes back as an ambassador. They come back talking about this incredible destination, how we need to preserve it, how we need to look after it. And uh, I think on a final point, really, you know, that body of water between the peninsula and the tip of South America known as the Drake Passage, obviously is, is, is well known for some bad weather. But I think the there's a misconception. It's not rough every single day of the week. It's rough times, but there is also plenty of times where it's flat calm, where it's moderate, and the crossing really is not, not that of a big deal. And, and is that dependent on the time you go, or are you just kind of lucky or not lucky? I mean, it's not really No, it, it, it's not really, uh, I mean, while you're down there for the summer months, while the expedition ships are down there, you can have bad weather at the start of the season, the middle of the season, the end of the season, and you can have good weather at the start, the middle, the end. So it's a little bit the luck of the draw. Obviously, nowadays, you know, weather forecasts and weather predictions are incredibly good. And, you know, you're using multiple sources for that information. And so ships can very much predict and determine when are good times to cross the Drake and, and may leave slightly earlier, slightly later, because the storms that do come through move quite quickly. So, you know, six to eight hours essentially makes a huge difference in that experience in crossing the Drake when it is bad, but it's not always bad. That is a misconception for sure. Yeah, and although you have itineraries down there, I think the captains very much listen to the weather forecast out there and they move around, depend, you know, they, they make sure that they're not sort of beholden to an absolute strict itinerary, are they, or timings, they can move around to avoid. No, that, that, that what you've just spoken about there really is the essence of expedition cruising. It's, it's, it's operating in a region with no set itineraries to give the captain and the expedition leader the best possible opportunities to deliver an experience. And so, you know, if we know the weather's bad, yeah, we move around the corner. There's lots of small bays and protected areas. So the ability to move away from bad weather when you're on the peninsula and still operate somewhere where, you know, outside it's 40, 50 knots of wind around the corner, there's almost zero wind. So there really is a lot of flexibility. And that, that's essential to delivering a great experience for the guests is looking at the weather, the wind, the ice conditions, and then every single day building on that to deliver various experiences. Yeah. And the other thing I remember you saying, Robin, is because you know, I was thinking, are you lucky if you get to see some of the wildlife? But you were saying to me before, it's not about that. It's everywhere. So it's not a case of like having to find it like you might on sometimes you're looking for the big five on safari and sometimes you might have a day when you don't manage to find them. But it's everywhere in Antarctica. That is correct. Uh, you know, I think if we look at the polar regions, I think most expedition leaders would say they prefer Antarctica with regards to that guarantee of wildlife. You know, I can brief you, for example, today and I can say tomorrow we're going to Brown Bluff and there's going to be 40,000 Adelie penguins. And when we get there tomorrow, there will be 40,000 Adelie penguins. So to some extent, many known landing sites where different penguin species breed, we know exactly 
when they'll be there, when, you know, when they'll be on eggs, when they'll be on, when they have chicks. And so that aspect of it, we can obviously plan quite nicely, but having wildlife encounters is, is, is not a problem at all in Antarctica. You know, if you're wanting to specifically see whales, then we suggest you come maybe slightly later in the season, you know, mid-January kind of onwards, because that's when the humpback whales and some of the other whales really get down there in their, in their very, very large numbers. So there is some seasonal variation in the wildlife with regards to some seals, uh, some of the whale species, but generally the penguin species during that three, three and a half months, they're pretty much guaranteed in terms of where they're, where they're nesting and, and, and where to find them. Okay, all right. Now, before we move on from the Antarctic then, just talk to me about the, the length of time you need. And I know some itineraries include the Falklands, uh, don't they, and South Georgia. Are they a must? Do they offer you a very different experience to going out to the peninsula? Because, I mean, people don't know. What do they need to make sure is in that itinerary they sell to their clients? So majority of guests who visit Antarctica will leave from Ushuaia. They will do two days at sea, five days on the peninsula, and then two days back again. So a, a typical 10-day Antarctica sailing Ushuaia, Ushuaia, is what majority of operators will have. Um, there are some variations to that. And, and, and one of the real variations is a kind of a longer, either an 18-day or a 21-day, depending on the operator in terms of what they've chosen. But really, it's, it's leaving Ushuaia, they head out, they spend some time in the outer Falkland Islands. So a lot of people who've mainly only done cruising only really know of Stanley as a destination when going to the Falklands. But from an expedition standpoint, the best stuff in terms of wildlife and wildlife encounters is on the outer islands, specifically kind of on the northwestern side of the, of the Falklands. You've got Carcass, West Point, New Island, Steeple Jason. You know, 60% of the world's black brown albatross population nests in the Falkland Islands. You come ashore on those islands, you can, come ash you can come ashore and see three, four different penguin species. You can stand on the edge of a nesting black brown rookery, albatross rookery. And if you get there in kind of late February, you've got the young chicks standing on the nests. And the, the black brown albatrosses nest very specifically in these kind of areas that where the wind on the cliffs funnel up. And it's done on purpose so that their young can learn to fly. All they have to do is put their wings out and they kind of just take off the nest and then drop again. And there's magical stuff to be seen on the outer island. So that's very, very special. Then, of course, we head over to South Georgia. Now, South Georgia, the best way I think to describe it is when people do the full 18 days, they, they fall in love with Antarctica, but South Georgia tends to actually be the highlight. South Georgia has the early whaling history. It has tundra. It's got glaciers. It's got Gridviken with the research station. Um, you know, it's got early exploration. It's got the Shackleton story. And then on top of that, apart from the albatrosses, you know, the hundreds of thousands of fur seals, the elephant seals, you're coming ashore in certain areas like Gold Harbor, uh, Salisbury Plain, St. Andrews. And I think probably some of the biggest wow factors you'll ever see anywhere in the world. You can imagine coming ashore and walking 100 yards or 120 meters or something. You come over this ridge and in front of you is 250,000 pairs of king penguins. The wildlife and the abundance of wildlife in South Georgia is, is, is something incredible and I think really found anywhere else in the world. And then, of course, we're still heading down to, to Antarctica for, for five, six days. And then of course, back towards Ushuaia. So, you know, I always say to people, 
if you have the opportunity, go down to Antarctica, experience it. Many people don't have the time, but if you have additional time, I highly, highly recommend to do the Falklands, South Georgia, and Antarctica. It's three different experiences, but overall, it's, it's the most incredible, I would say, Southern Ocean expedition you can do. So, I'm in. <laughs> okay, let's, we've got to keep going. Let's go up to the Arctic then. Yes. Very different experience there. Um, is the wildlife as abundant in the Arctic? Um, yes, I mean, there, there is an abundance of wildlife for sure. You know, you can visit, for example, bird cliffs in various areas, and there's tens of thousands of guillemots on the bird cliffs nesting. And there is some fantastic zodiac cruises to do, like in Bear Island, like up in Svalbard, in Hinlopen Strait, uh, up in Franz Josef Land. So there is for sure an abundance of wildlife. It's just not as concentrated as what we would find on the peninsula in a very, very small area. The wildlife right. concentrations in Antarctica are quite specific and in quite specific belts and specifically on that Antarctic Peninsula because it kind of sticks out away from Antarctica. So it supports breeding in a, in a, in a bit of a better way. So the Arctic, of course, is, is much larger. It's over a much larger area. So the wildlife tends to be more spread out. But, you know, I think the way I sometimes explain it to, to guests who ask about moving to both areas and you know, what's fantastic about the Arctic is, yes, there's glaciers, there's ice, but it's different. It's not quite as overwhelming as Antarctica. But then again, you can be up at 79, 80 degrees north and you've got flowering plants. It's more yes. subtle. It's different. It's a different experience. But of course, you know, things like Arctic foxes, uh, things like walrus, seals. And of course, everybody comes to the Arctic to see a polar bear. If you're an expedition leader, if you haven't seen a polar bear by about day five or six on a 10 day sailing, you can start to feel the eyes kind of staring <laughs> at you. There, there is without a doubt a bit of pressure. So, you know, I often say guests get extremely excited about coming ashore in Antarctica and we know, you know, we wake up, we know brown bluff, 50,000 penguins tomorrow. We can't do that in the Arctic with polar bears. It's a little bit different. You're putting yourself in an area where you hope to see polar bears. In the Arctic, what's fantastic is we generally spend a day off Svalbard, for example, ice cruising with the ship, looking for walrus, looking for bears on the ice. So there is more anticipation and a more of a buildup, I would say, in the Arctic when it comes to viewing the wildlife. But when you're in the zodiacs and you're moving along and you're seeing a polar bear along the shoreside moving along, or if you're in the ice and you've got a polar bear maybe 100, 200 meters away, and you viewing it and you've seen it, that one polar bear encounter, trust me, is equivalent to seeing 60,000 Adelie penguins. It's, it's, it's really very, very special to see an animal of that size, of that nature, to in its natural environment, looking on the ice, feeding, hunting. It, it is something quite special. Oh, I bet. All right. Well, before we go to Andy with questions from the audience, Robin, tell me how cruising in, in the polar regions, both of them, has evolved and, and how the customer has evolved. We know it's you know, there's more luxury sort of expedition cruising uh, going on now. And, uh, you know, I'm just interested to know whether you're, that, that means it's attracting different types of people. Um, so, you know, expedition cruising traditionally was born out of, let's say, secondhand vessels. Um, they were not vessels that were purpose built for the expedition industry. So, the vessels that were originally used by operators were basic vessels. They were old research vessels. They were icebreaker type vessels. 
because they weren't built with the intention of expedition travel. They were built with the intention of another purpose and then refurbished to fit expedition travel. So that is how the industry really was born in terms of vessels and accommodation. But, you know, in the earlier days, guests going to these incredibly remote places were more than happy to make a sacrifice in, let's say, creature comforts because they knew what was waiting for them off the ship. Yeah. And that's really what they were going to see. It wasn't about the ship. It was about what was off the ship. That has evolved. And I would say in mid-2000s, 2000, yeah, around about 2008, that slowly started to change. There was a number of companies that started to introduce purpose-built vessels. Um, and then there was a number of companies that started to do more luxury vessels. And then, of course, about four years ago, the market exploded. There was an endless, a huge, not an endless, a huge amount of new expedition ships being built, dedicated expedition ships. And a lot of those dedicated new builds were actually in the luxury segment. Um, and so I definitely think for a guest, there is now the choice. You know, there's no longer having to make a sacrifice in terms of your creature comforts around you. You can now take an ultra luxury vessel to almost any remote destination on the planet. And so I, I definitely think for those people who maybe waited for that, there is more of an expansion in the market now. And we're definitely reaching more people who maybe previously were going to wait until more of a luxury yeah. product came on the yeah. line to experience these remote areas. Okay, and and you say it's exploded, but it's still it, it's not. You're not seeing loads of other ships all the time, and it's not. Like oh real. no, no, no! I, I let me actually. It's a good point, it, it when I use the term exploded, it's it's in context to expedition cruising. Yeah, you know, I, I I think yes, there are 30, 40 new expedition ships being built. Yes, the expedition segment right now is the fastest growing segment in the cruise industry. Yeah. but if you take those thirty ships and add all the beds together, I don't think you get to one new build size of some vessels but, currently being built. So that does put it in perspective. Very it's good. definitely yeah. not a situation where no, there's endless ships and it's crowded. That's the furthest thing from the truth. We also need to keep in mind, there are governing bodies. There's governing bodies in the Arctic, ECO, there's governing bodies, IATA in the South. And those two governing bodies, the mem their member organizations, they do an incredibly good job at regulating environmental friendly tourism in the Arctic and in Antarctica with site guidelines, wildlife guidelines. It, okay. it, they do an incredibly good job. Brilliant. All right. Good to know. Uh, let's get Andy uh, on the screen with our questions from our audience. Hi, Andy. Hi Robin. Thanks for joining us again today. Absolute uh, pleasure. Hi, Andy. Good to see you. Lots of comments, lots of thoughts. So let's pick out some of the best ones. So first question, what age limit would you recommend for somebody to travel to Antarctica? Uh, age limit? Um, you know, expedition travel is really about educating people where they're going. And so we often have families ask about bringing on much younger kids. And although it's nice to maybe experience it as a family, um, I would say around about 10, 11, 12 years old, probably like 11, 12, where, where there's an understanding and an appreciation for the lectures, the presentations, the interpretation, because it's a very focused um, educational experience. Also, we need to realize many expedition ships, because of the nature of how they operate, they don't really have facilities on board to accommodate small 
children and entertain small children. The entertainment is the lectures, it is the presentations, it's the recaps and the briefings. So I would say run about 10, 12 years old for them really to benefit from that experience. Great, thank you. Yeah, it must be one of the most educational destinations on, on the planet, I guess. Um, question on submarines and helicopters. Are these a great way forward to see different places and different aspects of some of the destinations being visited? Um, yes, they are. Um, you know, I, I think it opens up greater opportunities um, to be able to take a submarine and, and obviously put our heads under the water in places like Antarctica or the Arctic, you know, and, and see what's under is, is I think something very special. And, and, you know, to some extent, as I mentioned earlier, the, the entire expedition industry is really about teaching and educating people about destinations so that they ultimately have an, a greater appreciation and, you know, leave as what we refer to as ambassadors for these areas. And things like helicopters, things like submarines, those can deliver on greater educational experiences to be able to look at hoping to protect these areas and make people more aware of them. So for sure, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a great asset in terms of educating people in these remote regions. Thank you. That's a great answer. But also submarines and helicopters are a pretty cool way of exploring <laughs> as well. There's, um, there's, yeah, there's no way. It is very, very cool. It's, yeah. but it's, you know, again, you know, people who may not be aware of it, the regulatory bodies like ECO, like IATA, have very, very strict guidelines in terms of how and where they can be utilized. So there is a minimal impact on the wildlife in these regions. Thank you very much. Uh, Jane's question is around the best time of year to visit. So let's, and, and, and Lucy, we'll keep that question on because she also asked about Galapagos. We'll save that question for our next guest, but maybe the best time to visit Arctic and Antarctic to start with. Um, sure. It's, it's a little bit of a difficult question, especially in Antarctica. It depends a little bit what you want to see. But, you know, generally speaking, I my, my personal opinion, the best time to probably visit Antarctica um, in terms of seeing a real mix of the wildlife, uh, you know, the, the penguin chicks, the, the, the whales, is probably somewhere around about mid-January. That, that's probably, and historically speaking, that also should be the most consistently good weather. There's no guarantee, obviously. So, but again, you know, we have guests who you want to see that pristine white, white Antarctica early season. So, you know, going early November is also a fantastic experience. First up, there's obviously never a bad experience going to either of the destinations during that summertime period. But if I had to pick, I would say mid-January. If I had to pick up in the Arctic, again, you know, it's a short season. So the wildlife you're seeing there and the different stages, it happens very, very quickly. Um, but again, you know, in the Arctic, I'm picking kind of middle of the summer. It's the best time in terms of seeing the wider spread of certain wildlife. So again, kind of middle of July, middle to late July would probably be the best time to, to explore these regions. That's great. Thank you very much. A couple of comments more than questions, actually, because and I can hand back to Lucy. But Jacqueline says that she loves your enthusiasm. And I think she <laughs> sums up what a lot of us think, which is we would all love to visit these areas. Uh, Lydia, we're going to give you this idea. You can have this, uh, Robin. Uh, Lydia says, it's always a treat to hear you speaking. You're so passionate. Have you got round to writing your autobiography? Yet? <laughs> no. Not yet. I, I know a few people have mentioned that and I'd, uh, I'd be happy if anyone would like to help. <laughs> <laughs> um, and do, do, you have a, do you have a particular memory of you visiting either Antarctica or, or Arctic that stands out, that kind of sums up that experience? 
I do. Um, I think for me, one of the one of the memories that stand out was was it was quite a number of years ago. We were, and this was what I mentioned to Lucy earlier. We were kind of eight days into an expedition around Svalbard, and uh, we hadn't seen a bear. And I remember myself and the captain going, "Okay, you know, we're up in the north. Where 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 should we go next?" And of course, that's that's often the captain's. You know, that's his things. Like he says, the expedition leader, "Where should we go next?" So I said, "Let's head up into the ice. Let's explore the ice, and let's see what we see." And we got into the ice, we saw a polar bear. We then saw a polar bear with a fresh kill. We then saw another polar bear with a fresh kill. And then we came across another five or six polar bears. And what was happening is they all had, a number of them had kills and other bears were being brought in by the smell. And they were starting to attack the other bears and fight to get access to the food. And I remember we just put the ship in the ice literally turned the engines off and we just watched this incredible experience unfold in front of us and again that's expedition cruising it's not having an itinerary putting yourself in an environment for a length of period and then waiting for the wildlife to take you by the lead as you say lucy sold I know. <laughs> I know, like the hairs on the back of your neck, you go, oh, that sounds incredible. I even actually wrote down the best times to go as if I'm going to make go away now and make a booking. Maybe we I will. Do, we can do an event, Lucy. You know what's yeah. funny in the Arctic and the Antarctic is it's it's funny, but some days start out and you're you're struggling a bit to find something or to to to, and you having you know it's not uncommon to have an expedition day where you just you you see what you come across as the day moves, but so often when the day gets good. It gets better and better and better. And it's really, I've seen that so many times in Antarctica and in the Arctic. It, it's hard to explain that. And I literally think it's just one of those things that when you put yourself in that environment for a length of time period, you start to, to see more. Brilliant. All right. Well, I wish we could talk to you. I say this to every guest. I'm genuinely <laughs> I'm so fascinated. Uh, Robin, we're so grateful for your time. And, and as that um, the viewer said, your passion is just so oh, infectious thank you so much i'm sure we're all hoping to go to one of the polar regions but thank you very much to to robin west from seaborne absolute pleasure thank you so much for having me thank you annie thank you Lisa. thank you it is always wonderful to hear from true destination experts about some of the places that guests will be traveling to in the coming years so a big thank you to susanna romero and robin west and of course to lucy huxley now, did you know that we have launched a new Riverview podcast? So this is a podcast dedicated to the exciting world of river cruise. So if you are in SoundCloud, then all you need to do is search for Clear Riverview, Clear spelled C-L-I-A. For now, thank you for listening to the Clear Cruise podcast. We look forward to seeing you again soon.